This is episode number 511 with Drew Conway, Senior Vice President of Data Science at Two Sigma. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a Chief Data Scientist and best-selling author on Deep Learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's episode is a special event, a first of its kind, the first ever live recorded episode of the show. We shot it at the New York R Conference, which was run virtually this year due to the pandemic, but this still enabled us to thrive off the energy of knowing there's a live audience watching as we film, and the audience also got to ask us questions, which all ended up being outstanding. My courageous guest for this live episode experiment is the incredibly accomplished and incredibly articulate Dr. Drew Conway. Drew is a senior vice president at Two Sigma, one of the world's largest hedge funds, where he is responsible for applying data science strategically to private investment decisions, such as those in real estate and private equity. He also co-authored the classic hands-on O'Reilly book called Machine Learning for Hackers. He was co-founder and CEO of the New York-based data science startup Alluvium, which was acquired in 2019. He's formally advised countless successful data-focused startups from the New York area, such as Y-Hat, Reonomy, and Insight. And prior to all of that, he obtained his PhD in politics from New York University. In today's special live episode, without a single retake, Drew manages to flawlessly cover what private investing is, how data science can lead to better private investment decisions, the differences between creating and executing models for public markets, such as stock exchanges relative to private markets, what he looks for in the data scientists he hires, including how he interviews them, um, and his infamous Venn diagram for explaining what data science is. While slightly technical for brief moments, today's episode is relatively high level, so should appeal to anyone who's interested in how data science can be applied to investing or to anyone interested in working at a world-leading hedge fund. All right, you ready to jump headfirst into this live episode? Let's do it. Drew, this is awesome. This is so exciting. We've never done anything like this before. This is going to be the 511th episode of the Super Data Science Podcast. It's going to air on October 5th, and there has never been, in the 510 preceding episodes, a live filming of it. So, yeah, very cool. Thank you for being open. My pleasure. I'm excited. Um, And yeah, maybe next year in June, presumably... Uh, things will open up and we can go to the Alliance Francaise or the Alliance Francois, as Jared yeah. likes to call it. <laughs> and, uh, and we can actually do something like this in person. I'd love to do Super Data Science live with people, but uh, being able to do it virtually has its benefits as well. I can get scorched by the sun here in this spot. 
um, and you don't have to leave home. You didn't have to come to the city. You live upstate a bit, right? I do. I live well. I live just outside of New York in a town called Pelham, so I'm about thirty minutes from Grand Central. Um, and I would have loved to have done it in person too, but this is uh, this is sort of the next best thing. So I'm excited we get to have this little chat. I'm not super familiar with Pelham, but I hear it a lot because I think it's like the six train or the four train or something as it's going. Yeah, it's like the Pelham Bay Express train. Well, uh, (laughs) made famous by the uh, old and then new again taking of the Pelham one, two, three. So you can take the one or the two or the three all the way up to Pelham Bay, which is uh, right on the Bronx side of where I live. Nice. Um, All right. So uh, Jared is someone that you're very familiar with, as was familiar to anybody who's here at the R conference because um, he gave that very warm introduction. We're going to get into that in a moment. Jared was himself recently on the Super Data Science Podcast. He was in episode number 501. Uh, and I'm sure there are many guests from the show that you know, but I don't know who they all are yet. <laughs> I do know that you definitely know Claudia Perlick, who was on episode number 437. It was the second episode that I ever hosted of the Super Data Science show. She's been a friend of mine for many years now. And you work with her directly at Two Sigma. I do. It sounds like yeah. you share. Yeah. So Claudia and I, uh, we work directly together. In fact, if we were back in the office, we sit uh, right behind one another. So we, we were physically right next to each other in the office. And she and I, um, we co-lead a team at Two Sigma called Strategic Data Science. Um, and mm. our focuses are somewhat separate. Uh, while we do manage the same overall group, I focus uh, the efforts at Two Sigma on our private investing business, which I think we'll talk about uh, maybe later. And Claudia focuses primarily her research on our core hedge fund business. Uh, and the strategic part of strategic data science is, you know, we have this fun deal where we get to try all the new stuff. We get to be much more experimental. We get to take a longer range view of the work that we're doing. Um, and of course, getting to work closely to Claudia Perlick is a joy. So um, she was actually a big part of the, uh, of why I joined Two Sigma, knowing that I would get to wow. work with Claudia every day. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. She is a special mind for sure. Um, and a lot of fun. So yeah, so we are going to talk about that later. We're going to dig into in detail your strategic data science role and the private investing that you do there at Two Sigma. Uh, but we're going to make our way there uh, first by talking about the R conference that we're recording this episode live at, and um, kind of its history. So this is the seventh um, iteration of the R conference uh, in New York, and it comes out of the New York R community, which for a long time was called NY Hack R, and today is called the New York Statistical Pro- the New York Open Statistical there Programming you Meetup. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can thank me for that jumbled mouthful. I think I made that switch at some point. It is what it says. Um, And I like it. I I was imagining, actually, you can probably tell us about this because I've imagined in my mind many times when you realized at some point you wanted to be, to have a, a name for the community that wasn't going to have as much of a time limit on it because programming languages come and go. Exactly. Uh, And yeah, so in the beginning, calling it NY hack R very clever name. Um, and so Jared talks about that. So Jared was recently on episode 501 of Super Data Science, and um, in that he talks about the beginnings of what is now the Open Statistical Programming Meetup, what was NYHackR. He talks about the name of it a bit, and in talking about the genesis of the group, he specifically cited you, Drew, 
as one of the critical people in growing this group. So tell us about those early days of NYHR. Sure. Yeah, so the the way that this story starts for me is actually when I was in graduate school. So as a graduate student at NYU, I was taking my early, you know, statistics classes and in those classes everything was done in Stata. And after literally one session of the of the, you know, the TA kind of walking us through Stata and then Meta, if you're familiar with like the DSL that exists within I have never heard of that Stata. one. Yeah. Um Stata I've heard of, but not yeah. Meta. So I, I basically threw my hands up and said, I am not going to invest time in learning this tool. And I'd known about R. I'd sort of seen code floating around the internet, you know, time frame wise is sort of like late 2008. Um, I used that, essentially that class to teach myself R. And so what I saw at that point was to try to find people that could help me learn it. And I happened to find out through folks that I knew in the department and around New York that there was this group of people who were meeting to talk about R and it was a meetup. And like, even in 2008, the notion of going to a meetup was still relatively new. Um, mm -hmm. But of course, I'd know, I knew what it was. It was a startup that was in New York City. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll check out this meetup. Meetup.com. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, meetups with a capital M. Yeah, yeah, that was the real deal back in back in the early mid 2000s. Um, so the original founder of the group was a guy named Josh Reich. Josh um, went on uh, to be quite successful as the founder of Simple. If you're familiar with Simple Bank, he was the, one of the founders of Simple. Mm -hmm. And he, I'll never forget the 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 first presentation that I saw in R was was given by Josh, and it was on how to download your own personal finance data from like your online bank and do a bunch of analysis on it inside of R. Oh, and once I saw cool. that, I was basically hooked. Um, and one of the things that I thought I could be useful at, because at the end of the, at the end of the initial meetup, what Josh said is sort of a call to action to all of us and said, Hey, um, we have this space and we were actually um, sitting in a conference room at Union Square Ventures because one of the partners at Union Square Ventures had graciously allowed us to, you know, use this space for this one night. He said, hey, you know, if anybody knows where we can get space to have a more regular meeting, let me know. And I said, well, listen, I'm a grad student. There's hundreds of classrooms at NYU that are not used in the evening. Let me see if I can figure something out. And so Josh and I kind of partnered on that. And for that first year or so, I, you know, really just tried to help, be helpful in getting space, be helpful in finding speakers. I spoke at one of one or more of, of those conferences or meetups rather. Um, mm -hmm. And eventually Josh said, you're better. I think you're better positioned to run this than I am. I'm starting this company. I'm a startup co-founder. You're a grad student. So, you know, the, the resource <laughs> that you have a lot of is time. Uh, so right. maybe you could kind of take this over for me. And, and, and that's what I did. And, you know, that's it was sort of after that period of initial startup time where, you know, it was mostly just about finding space and speakers, you know, we started using the tools of the day, you know, kind of early social media to start to build some momentum around the group. And there was a real demand for it. Um, then it became really easy to get speakers. And that's when I met Jared and, and you know, folks like Claudia and, and actually many of the speakers who've been at the conference today, I actually met through um, being part of that, that, that early sort of R or data science community in New York city. Very cool. And now it is the world's largest R community. So you set it off in the right direction for sure. Um, and it is amazing when the R, this group, the open statistical programming meetup, as it's called today, this R conference 
it really does host the biggest names in data science. For me, that was that was a draw in the beginning, um, and kind of that's how I met Jared was through going to the Open Statistical Programming meetups, and I was drawn by these amazing names that you see, uh, like Hadley Wickham um, yeah. or Claudia or yourself, yeah. where I'm like, wow. Um, I've, I've read their textbook and now I can go see them in person and it still kind of feels intimate. Like you still, even when someone big like Hadley Wickham comes, there's still only a couple hundred people there. Like he makes eye contact with every single person who comes in. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the things that, you know, and all the credit to Jared in, in continuing the, the community aspect of it, you know, the, the really great thing about the, 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 the open statistical programming meetup and the the data science and, and sort of R and stats community in New York City, and, you know, oftentimes, particularly in the early days when we were organizing it, people would say, you know, New York City obviously is a huge city, the largest city, so you would expect it to be big. But, you know, <laughs> even in 2000, you know, 2010, 2011, New York City was not the largest technology community. Obviously, you have San Francisco, right. but also places right. like Boston and, uh, and, and other large university towns where you might expect there to actually be a greater density. And so what, why is New York City doing so well? And I would always kind of think about this theory. You know, one part is, you know, what are the anchor industries in New York and what is sort of driving people to want to learn from one another? And, you know, obviously finance being a key one, but also media and advertising and retail you know, all of these industries, particularly at that time, were really starting to ramp up their use of data. And, you know, R became mm-hmm. kind of the lingua franca of research and development, even, you know, both in academia, obviously, but also in industry. And so you had this really nice confluence of, you know, academics, folk like myself in graduate school who were using this time to really skill up and learn what was out there, obviously build relationships with peers who were in academia but then also being able to see how it was actually being used in industry from people who are real life practitioners, I think that created an amazing amount of cohesion. And then there's this other simple fact about New York City, which is, you know, for better or worse, we're all kind of crammed on that little island. And so it's very easy to get around and go to a meetup. I mean, I remember the first time yeah. I went to, you know, the R meetup or stats meetups in the Bay Area. You'd have to get in your car and drive half an hour, hour, 90 minutes, you know, from downtown San Francisco to Menlo Park, or you're going, you know, there's something over in Mountain View, whatever. That's that's a long haul. Um, whereas mm-hmm. in New York City, you know, get on a subway, go 20 minutes in one direction, and you're there, and you can be home in time to, you know, have a normal dinner. Uh, and, yep. you know, it's simple things like that that I think really helped in those early days and kind of created the flywheel. And like I said, now the largest community in the world, something that's uh, you know very yeah. impressive. Eliminating unnecessary distractions is one of the central principles of my lifestyle. As such, I only subscribe to a handful of email newsletters, those that provide a massive signal to noise ratio. One of the very few that meet my strict criterion is the Data Science Insider. If you weren't aware of it already, the Data Science Insider is a 100% free newsletter that the Super Data Science team creates and sends out every Friday. We pour over all of the news and identify the most important breakthroughs in the fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. The top five, simply five news items. The top five items are handpicked, the items that we're confident will be most relevant to your personal and professional growth. 
Each of the five articles is summarized into a standardized, easy-to-read format and then packed gently into a single email. This means that you don't have to go and read the whole article, you can read our summary and be up to speed on the latest and greatest data innovations in no time at all. That said, if any items do particularly tickle your fancy, then you can click through and read the full article. This is what I do. I skim the Data Science Insider newsletter every week. Those items that are relevant to me, I read the summary in full. And if that signals to me that I should be digging into the full original piece, for example to pour over figures, equations, code, or experimental methodology, I click through and dig deep. So, if you'd like to get the best signal-to-noise ratio out there in data science, machine learning, and AI news, subscribe to the Data Science Insider, which is completely free and no strings attached, at superdatascience.com DSI. That's superdatascience.com DSI. And now, let's return to our amazing episode. And so obviously for people in spitting distance of New York City or in New York City itself, the kind of the takeaway here is if you're not already familiar with the Open, Statistic the Open Statistical Programming <laughs> Meetup or the R Conference, these are amazing communities to get involved with to learn from the best in the business. But there's also another um, narrative here that I think is important for people anywhere in the world, which is that there are probably something like these meetups, and they might be meetups with a capital M, <laughs> like formally on meetup.com, or they might be somehow organized through a local university or some, some other industry group. But there are very likely real life communities like these in your area that are absolutely amazing to get involved with. There is something intangibly better about meeting people in person as opposed to from Stack Overflow posts or something. Absolutely. You just, you, you really, it feels personal. You, when you can put a face to a big paper or a book, it really makes that content come to life and you feel like you're a part of it. Um, and so in the same way that you described getting involved with NY Hack R all those years ago to support your self-learning of R, um, a lot of my career as a speaker in data science came from me standing up at the Open Statistical Programming Meetup and saying, hey, I would like to know deep learning really well. I'd like to go through textbooks, but I don't want to do it on my own. So would anybody like to join me? And that gave me my first people, uh, first list of people to see this group for my deep learning study group. And that's how I then led to having a deep learning book. And that in a way kind of led to me having this podcast. And so I think there's amazing things that can happen in community. And whether you're in New York or not, you can do that anywhere. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, and, and I can I can cite directly, you know, real kind of life and career changing moments for me that really started in relationships that I I made either at the R meetup or hanging out within that community. I mean, uh, um, whether it was my co-author John Miles White for Machine Learning for Hackers, who I met through the R meetup. Or my co-founder in my startup, Chris Bethel, who saw me speak at an R meetup and built a relationship with me through there, and, and we went off and started a company together years later. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mean, your your approach, John, I, I agree with completely. I mean, I often tell particularly folks earlier in their career, you know, they say, well, how can I, you know, start to build a, you know, build these relationships, and you know, maybe I'm more introverted and I, I don't, I'm not so good in in crowds and trying to meet people. The biggest, <laughs> you know, hack I can give you is if you give a talk, people come to you. 
then you don't have to worry about like putting in the energy to go meet people. If you stand in right. front of a group of people and give a talk on something you know well or are passionate about, they'll come right up to you, and then and then you you've short circuited that issue. Um, and also, you know, it's an old cliche, but the you know to really know something, you have to teach it. And so to actually put in the work to put even 100%. a simple meetup talk together, it really mm -hmm. refines you know your view of that. And like you said, that can lead to actually actively educating people by writing a book or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So you mentioned your book there, <laughs> Machine Learning for Hackers. Um, I'd love to talk about that. So that book came out in 2012. Um, I mentioned it briefly, I think at the onset of this program, because that is how I first became familiar with you. Um, uh, so yeah, so I've known, I'd known about you for many years. I've actually still never met you in person. Right. Um, so that'll happen post pandemic, but this is kind of, you know, getting to know each other here on air. Um, so that book machine learning for hackers was hugely useful for me back 10 years ago because it allowed me to transition from an academic data science career. So we finished our PhDs around the same time, 2013 mm -hmm. and when you do a PhD, uh, most people, some people are smarter about this today and they do deliberately learn kind of a wide set of data science kind of skills. But a lot of people, myself included, you develop quite a niche specialization. And your book was perfect for me to get an overview of what I could be doing with a whole bunch of different machine learning approaches. So it takes a hands-on approach in R and it covers from data distributions to get you started, so you can understand a bit about probability, to uh, machine learning algorithms like classification, regression approaches, principal component analysis, k-nearest neighbors, graph analysis. Each chapter uses a different hands-on use case to introduce, a I think in each chapter's case, a completely new kind of topic which could be useful in whatever data science field you go into. Yeah, and the origin of that book is actually inextricably tied to the the R community and the data science community in New York City. As I mentioned, John and I met as both being participants in this community, and John gave many talks at the community, and he and I grew to be very close. He was a grad student at Princeton, and I was at NYU, so we we saw a lot of each other. He was in, he was uh, in the psychology department, I was in the politics department, so we had a you know, a sort of social science orient towards our research. And, and there's a lot of overlap there. And, you know, as John and I both together and separately were interacting with this community, one of the things that we noticed as a trend is, you know, as kind of data science as this sort of emergent unicorn-like skill set was, was starting to uh, come out over that time period, we found a lot of people that we knew who were software engineers by training, who are working at companies in New York City, and otherwise, we're starting to get asked to build classification models or do forecasting models or use, you know, graph structures from a social media company to make some inference. And we knew that it would be incredibly challenging for someone in their day-to-day -day job to simply implement that without, you know, having to go back and read a deep technical textbook on how all the math works. So what we thought about is would it be possible to write a you know case study based textbook where every chapter was a different algorithm and we kind of demystified 
how that algorithm worked to, you know, to your point, really kind of give people a pretty wide breadth of the tools that were out there. So if you were, you know, either that engineer sitting at a startup, you know, there's three of you there and suddenly the CEO is saying, I need a classification algorithm, like here's the data go, you could at least get started and, and start to contextualize that for yourself. Or if you were a, a student, you know, undergraduate, graduate student who wanted to be able to apply this to their own research, but again, weren't coming from a computer science or machine learning background, you were coming from a different kind of department, you could look at that book and start to get yourself started. Um, and while, you know, the book is, like you say, over 10 years old today, so most of what's in there is very dated. Um, and, you know, you, you, wouldn't, well, you, wouldn't write those you wouldn't write those algorithms today the way that they're written there. I think, you know, the, the concept of what we, what we tried to do there, I think, continues to have value today because there's just as many people today who are in those positions as there were 10 years ago. Yeah, and you don't need to even be sitting at a computer going through the exercises to make the most of them. I actually read the book on a flight to Greece and back um, in a summer. And I, you know, you can go through the code examples. If you're familiar with object-oriented programming languages, particularly R, it's quite easy to follow along with what's happening. And you can say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And so mm -hmm. that kind of that hands-on approach, like you're saying, it gives you um I think a really clear way of understanding how classification safe works. And I just noticed, I can't believe I didn't notice this before, is that, so the open statistical programming meetup back then was called NY Hack R, and this book was called, or is called, Machine Learning for Hackers. So yeah. what's it, what do you, I mean, you don't mean like uh, cybersecurity hackers, you just mean like, I guess you kind of you're self-defining as somebody who's kind of hacking away at code, or what's up with that? Right, you, that was a that's a it's a good that you bring this up because this actually ended up being an issue with like O'Reilly and the editors at the point of printing and like what the title <laughs> would be because of course most people when they see hacker they think you know black hat <laughs> hacker you know coding away right. breaking into into systems. What John and I wanted to do was to try to reclaim some of the what we thought of as more of the original meaning of hacker when it came to like software and technology that is really kind of peeling the the top layer off of a tool and getting into something and understanding how it works. And so hacking around with data, hacking around with um, a tool like R, not to say that you would be a expert in it and nothing that we were doing in that book or, or what we were trying to say was about bringing someone from sort of intro to expert level, but make you you know, knowledgeable enough with the tool that you could start to hack around on stuff and hopefully from there learn on your own and grow or use other more, you know, deeper, more sophisticated references to kind of understand something um, at a deeper level. And so, yeah, we've, we tried to reclaim that hacker, although I remember I haven't checked <laughs> them in a long time. Thankfully, I'm sure that they, they get worse over time, but you know, some of the early Amazon comments or feedback that we got was, I bought this book thinking it was going to be about like hacking systems and it's not, there's no thing, nothing about hacking in it at all. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, what can you do? I, I ran into issues with reviews on Amazon, a few people with, so my book is called Deep Learning Illustrated. And so we use a lot of visualizations. There are over 200 illustrations that we had drawn by an artist there are tons of visual graphics, and there's also this idea that, just like in your book, you use hands-on code demos to illustrate how things work. But I have several Amazon reviews that basically are complaining that this isn't like a graphic novel. 
that it isn't a comic book. <laughs> They're like, this isn't illustrated at all. So like, I can't possibly give it a bigger, higher than a three-star review. It's not an illustrated book. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. there's hundreds of illustrations. Right. So yeah, I understand. I feel like that's a bit, that's a bit of a badge of honor. You know, you can't, you can't put <laughs> effort into something and write a book without having someone, you know, throw a review like that over the wall. So if anything, well done. All right, thanks. Right, great. <laughs> Take that, reviewer. Um, <laughs> all right. So, all right. So we've talked about your relationship to this our conference that we're doing this live Super Data Science episode at. Um, we have talked about your book, and you have done tons of amazing things over the course of your career, from your PhD to today. And we might get to that depending on how many audience questions we have from the live audience here, but. What I really want to dig into is what you're doing today. So you are at Two Sigma, which is one of the world's largest hedge funds. As I mentioned earlier on, you can check out episode number 437 with Claudia Perlick, who also is at Two Sigma. And she talks about um, her role uh, in the same kind of strategic data science position that you're in, uh, Drew. But uh, she's involved more with the... Uh, I actually, you could probably describe it better than me how to distinguish. I know that you're doing private investing and hers mm -hmm. is, is not private. Hers is kind of a lab, I guess, for coming up with trading strategies for Two Sigmas, right? Um, you know, Two Sigma, as, as you mentioned, has an enormous platform for doing data science, you know, lots and lots and lots of data. So it's a great place to come if you love working with data. Um, and the vast majority of that data is really focused on kind of understanding how, you know, small micro behaviors in the economy, consumer behaviors in the economy may be reflected in the public markets. And the theory that we operate on the private market side is that same kind of data can help inform private market strategies. Um, whether that's investing in businesses or buying buildings, you can learn a lot about where the overall economy is going at a both at a macro scale. So, you know, generally where the U.S. economy is going or, or other, you know, globally um, and then zeroing in on more micro um, analyses, whether that's understanding the activity in a specific region in the U.S. So how can we use this data to understand the dynamics in you know one city in the U.S. versus another? But then even getting more micro and starting to provide you know, analyses on a specific business or, or, or on a specific property. Um, what becomes really challenging, and I'd be happy to talk about this more, is how that actually works in practice, right? Because ultimately the, the biggest difference between, you know, not this is not explicitly true, but you know, since we're talking about quality, like the biggest difference between what her work, you know, kind of like what her work ultimately is delivered to and what my work is delivered to and what my team does is we work with discretionary traders, like real live human beings who are going to think mm. about an investment that has to be made in a specific asset, again, a business or a building or what have you. On the hedge fund side, what they want to build is a model, right? A, a package, right. a piece of software that contains within it the underlying strategy. And then that model can go into an execution system and that's traded automatically. That world right. doesn't exist for us. And so, you know, the challenge for us is we think about our, our product as really being, you know, fully formed software products, right? Things that human beings will interact with. And that doesn't mean that it has to be like a fully realized web application with interactivity and things like that. But understanding what the right entry points are and how to actually deliver that information to an investor who already has a freestanding process, right? They know 
and have been doing it for, in some cases, you know, 20, 30 years of successful private market investing, we need to fit our work into that in such a way that it minimizes the friction of that, but hopefully also enhances the decision-making process. And that that is a really exciting challenge. I think one that not a lot of other um, financial institutions are contemplating. And, you know, it's what gets gets me excited about the work that we get to do. Let's definitely dig into that. Another thing that occurred to me that might be different between having models that are making trades in public markets and stock exchanges versus in private markets is I bet the speed can be quite different. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, in, in, you know, in, a, in the core hedge fund business that, you know, you're talking about trades being executed many times per second in some cases, but certainly, you know, multiple times per day. Um, in private markets, if you get a deal done a month, that's a pretty good pace. Um, right. The other side of it, which is even more important, is you know when you're thinking about the public markets business, you may be in and out of a particular position over the course of a few days or a month. In private markets, you make an investment, and you know you're in that investment for a minimum of five years, but it could be you know five to ten or fifteen years, depending on what the strategy is or, or what the nature of the asset is. And that's particularly interesting in, in an asset class like real estate, which is you know notoriously illiquid, right? So it doesn't have a lot of, uh, you know, an asset will not trade very often, um, and is also sort of famously opaque, right? And operates in a world where much of the information in the industry is contained in you know what I might describe as kind of private networks. You know, you and I having a conversation, you say, "Hey, Drew, I know that there's this building coming up for sale in the next few months." Wanted to get you get this information to you first, um, and there's and the, and the other interesting thing about real estate is there's not a you know there are really weird incentives about information you know particularly about what information you can believe and what information you can't because all the all the actors in that space may have different incentives about what information they do reveal and how they reveal it, and so you know, by adding a more systematic strategy to that, the challenge is you know are you actually by adding more information and data increasing fidelity or are you actually just increasing noise because now you have this broader right. set of data and does that actually create more value to your to your strategy than less i think clearly from the work that we've done there's a ton of value that can be added there but that same challenge remains which is at the end of the day there's a lot of things that may be interesting right i think about and i know you've experienced this you know as a graduate student you have this huge wide universe of stuff that you could research because there are many things that could be interesting but ultimately, is it you know in the academic sense going to you know move this move our scientific community forward, create new knowledge for a particular discipline? In some sense, we have a simpler problem in real estate, but the stakes are certainly higher. Which is, is this actually going to make the investment team better? Is this actually going to lead to a better investment? And you don't know the answer to that question for a long time. Right, fifteen years. Yeah, it could be. Wow. Well, that's cool. So tell us a bit about the team structure. Um, so, you know, we know that there are these hackers, <laughs> these data scientists um, who are uh, who are working with data sets, maybe new kinds of data sets, experimenting with models. And then you also have these humans that are doing the private investing. And so, yeah, how, how do you structure your data science team? How does that interact? with uh, these human traders? So it's a great question and quite frankly, something that we have been evolving over time. Um, 
But one thing that we were very explicit about early on, and if anything, have become more rigid about as the business has grown and the teams have grown, is there really should not be a separation between the data science team and the investment team. And that's true regardless of seniority, right? So, you know, me running the team and the CIO running the business or a data scientist working for me and, a, you know, a principal and, or, or an associate on the investment team working together. There needs to be very, very tight alignment and understanding of each other's work. And so one of the things that we found to be really, really useful in this case is to actually create a buddy system, actually have you know, oh. a direct one-to-one mapping between mm-hmm. someone on my team, you know, data scientist, engineer, and someone on the investment team so that they can work on, work on problems together. You know, we, um, on my team, we've implemented, you know, I would call it a semi agile type of process. You know, we kind of bound our workflow to two weeks. We talk about, you know, task prioritization and what we want to do. And we can, you know, put all those tickets in Git and we can, you know, track it as we would as software engineers. But the members, you know, members of our investment team are right there with us and folks on the team are meeting regularly. I mean, some of this is really just valuable from a, are we speaking the same language perspective? Because there can often be just that crosstalk of, I call it one thing, you call it another. I mean, it took, it took the, it took our investment team um, a while just to kind of get their heads wrapped around terms like, what is a, a feature? What do we mean by a response? Right. You know, stuff that you as right. a data scientist or someone who's statistically trained, you're throwing these terms around and you're not thinking twice about it. So just mm-hmm. almost do that osmosis process has been really valuable. But the really important stuff comes when, you know, we have these kind of heads up conversations about how are you really, how is this really going to get used in your decision making process? Again, it comes back to that interesting versus useful question. So we could create a model that's going to forecast some value for you. Um, and we may do really well in our backtesting, our error rates are really low, blah, blah, blah. And you look at that as an investor and you say, hmm, interesting, but that's not a value that goes into my underwriting. So why right. do I care about that? You know, how do I how, how do I build conf or or in the other case, this is something that goes into my underwriting. But how do I build confidence that it's actually useful if they don't if they aren't participating in the process of future engineering and model testing and really understanding that? So you know a lot of you know really a lot of credit to the folks on on our investment team who've been really dedicated to spending the time to do it. And I think for many of them, it has been quite eye opening to see just what it takes to do a project like this. I think as I've seen many times in my career. When folks from various industries start mm-hmm. to interact or think about using data science, machine learning, whatever you like, in their business, they view it as like a button that you can press and like mm-hmm. results fall out of. Mm-hmm. But obviously, we all, you know, folks in the audience today, and you and I certainly know that is almost laughably untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, some of my favorite meetings at work or when we can go through with an investor not the results of an analysis, but where we are in our panelization process or, you know, how we, what, what are we going to use as our normalization technique for this particular metric? And what are the consequences of choosing one versus another and having folks really understand the consequences of not making those choices and the benefit of taking the time to deeply understand the data generating process of a data set you're looking at and, and how that can influence your interpretation on the other end. 
Yep, I hear you, Drew. It is amazing uh, working with uh, people who are on the front lines of business in various kinds of applications over the years. It is basically a law (laughs) that they will, prior to getting to know a data scientist well and having to learn what we go through every day, you do have this sense that like, well, I know that kind of these data exist. You know, there's like, these data must exist. We must kind of know about that behavior on the internet or whatever. And so let's use that to have this model that, yeah, pumps out money. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, uh, like, what are you talking about? Like, there's not even any place to start with what you're describing. Um, Cool. So I understand that the buddy system, one-to-one buddy system sounds like a great way around... Um, yeah, training people, having them understand the features are the inputs to models uh, and all these other kinds of terms that we use all the time. As and by scientists. the way, it goes both ways. I mean, it's, it's deeply oh, valuable yeah, for, for my sure. team as well, right? No so, doubt. you know, n- none of us come to the table with years of private equity or real estate experience. Um, and, you know, what, what makes a good deal or what, is, what makes a market worth pursuing for a particular kind of property type great real estate investors and you know you people will have experienced this whether it's renting an apartment in new york city or buying a home or whatever there's so many you know kind of intangibles or immeasurables when it comes to real estate a lot of you know great real estate investors will sometimes you know know it when they see it and so starting to unpack that and actually create some structure around that and say well of course there may be many many things that we could never measure or never attempt to to kind of structure with data or in software but there are many things that we can, and it's just, you know, seeing a process, you know, unfold in real life, there's no better way to, to kind of get in and start to understand where the pain points are and, and what you can do to, to try to either improve it or automate parts of that. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, yeah, definitely uh, goes both ways. And so if in your hires that are working on your team, you're not necessarily looking for people that have, say, real estate experience. Uh, what do you look for in mm-hmm. the data scientists that you hire? Well, I am much more focused on how an individual thinks about a data problem and how they kind of start their process versus, you know, going deep on a technical screen or, you know, wanting to quiz someone on, you know, what distribution fo- functional forms they can write on the whiteboard and things like that. You know, <laughs> I, a lot of the, you know, there's certainly there's certainly a place, and I'll be the first to admit it is part of our interview process for seeing someone work with data, like actually sitting them down at a at a you know command line or an ID, and actually seeing them work with data and making sure like okay, the you kind of got the basics. This is a terrible way to see what you know, but it's the only way I can really do it. So let's do that. But mm-hmm. I really get much more value in sitting down with a candidate and asking them to think through a problem with me. Because the reality of our work, particularly in the private investing space, is we're given pretty open-ended or ambiguous problems to think about, right? So something as simple as, what are the drivers of rent growth in a market? Well, we may have lots of intuition about that, um, but then when you get to the actual question of, how are you going to measure that? What do you think are the pathways to understanding why this data is getting collected? How do you want to structure it? And so, you know, when I have an interview with someone, particularly kind of junior or, or kind of mid, mid-career folks, I will often say, hey, 
I want to I want to ask you to think about how you would measure this thing. And and sometimes I'll pick a pretty arbitrary thing like um, and I'll have to change it now because I'm going to put it on the podcast. But like oftentimes <laughs> I'll ask folks like, you know, let's let's imagine you wanted to measure the supply of coffee in New York City. How would you do right. that? How would you think about right. going about that? Let's, you know, let's just assume you let's assume you work at a place like Two Sigma and it's very easy to get access to any kind of data. How would you think about that? Like, let's let's talk through that problem. And, you know, candidates will have all different kinds of ideas. Obviously, there may be some overlap in those ideas. And then once we get through that problem, we can start to think about, OK, I like I like where you're going. Now, let's actually model this. You know, now let's move right. from measurement to modeling. How would you know, rather than just counting the supply of coffee, how much you try to forecast it and what would you need to do and what would be the implications of, of what you're doing? And, you know, you get through an hour of a conversation like that and you can really get to know what what kind of perspective people bring to a problem like that. Totally. I interview exactly the same way. Um, and I actually, I don't have a problem with saying that that's the question I ask because it doesn't matter if you know that that's the question in advance. Right, right. Because as soon as the person starts answering the question, you're like, well, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Like I'm the person saying this, like I'm, I'm right. saying to, like I can learn things from this interview process as well, where I'm like, wow, like that's an interesting way to think about modeling this problem. I don't know how to build that kind of model. Tell me about it. Right. Um, and so it ends up, so every single interview that I've ever had is completely different, even though we often start from the same. Right. <laughs> kind of no, that's question. exactly right. And it's, you know, what was interesting too is, and I've, I've spoken to peers, you know, folk hiring managers, and I, I often see this anti-pattern where hiring managers will get excited and have a more positive view of candidates if they're kind of going down the path that that interviewer would have gone down themselves and said, oh, this person thinks like I do. And so that's that's good. And, you know, we're kind of thinking about it the same way. I love it when it's like completely orthogonal to how I would have thought about the problem. Like they say something like, whoa, would have never thought about, you know, could we could we classify the size of the box trucks on the you know Verrazano Bridge coming in and identify <laughs> coffee cups or like you know just like stuff that right. might actually be really difficult to implement in practice, but it's like I really appreciate yeah. the creativity of that. Now let's dig into that right. and actually think about the practical implications of it. But those are always the most fun. Nice, and I'll be looking out for your cameras on the Verrazano Bridge. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> they're they're there. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, that's great. I think in terms of uh, having kind of the core of this episode of me having asked you questions, I have more questions here in case we don't have audience questions. But Jared, let us know. Do we have questions from the live audience here? And can you let us know what they are? Oh man, you must have had that one copied uh, and pasted and ready to go because that just <laughs> popped up really quickly. Right. Wow. Okay. Um, that is really specific, Drew. Do you know a lot about Venn diagrams? We have. I mean, this... I I know about the data science <laughs> Venn diagram, which I suspect is the. I mean. No. Uh, okay. Okay. That must be what it is because it says, "Can you tell us about the genesis of the Venn diagram?" Right. And I do appreciate the the, the question because it presumes that the data science Venn diagram has transcended the need to be specified as being about data science. It's just the <laughs> Venn diagram. <laughs> um, so the genesis of the Venn diagram is kind of, it, it's a pretty easy one, really. And it's, um, you know, the how it came to be may 
somewhat underwhelm folks given the longevity of of the figure itself. But you know, similar time period as to what we were talking about in in my origins in the art community. I was a grad student. Um, you know, sort of same around the same time as John and I were writing machine learning for hackers, and you know, everybody on the internet was talking about data science, right? It was this crazy new field, you know, uh, Harvard Business Review had it as the sexiest job of the 21st century. Um, and there seemed to be a lot of hotly debated, you know, Reddit forums and Twitter, I guess Twitter threads didn't exist at that point, but sort of Twitter stuff about what it was, like what was data science. And so uh, literally the story was, and you'll appreciate this as a graduate student, I was sitting in a lecture for like an intro to comparative politics, which I was a TA for. So I had to sit in the back of the class while the freshmen and sophomores at NYU were learning from the professor. And I just kind of started jotting down some ideas about, you know, what that what that would look like. And, and, and the point that I was really trying to hone in and as I was building it is you know, data science as a discipline, not data, not data scientist as a as a job title is fundamentally an interdisciplinary practice that, you know, and even 10 years ago, thinking about it as being, you know, a new, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, it's just statistics with computers, or it's just a different way of talking about machine learning. And, you know, those, those, I didn't, I didn't agree with that. It just didn't satisfy what I was trying to think about. And, and it partly was my, I think, bias as a social scientist thinking, well, you know, my training is to think about, how are human beings making choices? You know, why are collections of people deciding to do one thing versus another? And within that context, why do I think data science is a useful practice for exploring those questions? And so what became clear to me is sort of naturally connecting these three disparate practices that I find myself doing a lot, which was obviously a lot of coding. And even in the Venn diagram, I say like hacking skills. And again, kind of going back to that machine learning for hackers, it didn't mean that you were a professional software engineer, because that's not what I was, but someone mm -hmm. who could sit down with data and tools inside of, you know, software and start to manipulate that data and understand it and start to learn about it and go, you know, whether it's at the command line or with, you know, with R, do that work. But then, of course, there's also the fundamental training that you need from math and statistics to know what tools to apply to that data, right? Like, what are the things that you actually want to do with that data and how do you want to learn from it and you do really need to know how those models are constructed what the limitations are what the biases are and those things and so you do need some training some you can't just be hacking at the command line and expect to be able to create work and then the final piece which again i think came from you know for me at least thinking about my training as a social scientist is like why are you even asking that question like what is what is important about the thing that you're trying to solve and, and where do those questions come from and as I was interacting with professors or experts in their various field, it was clear to me that the best way to do that was to have deep understanding of that subject matter and really knowing like why a particular problem area is important. And so, you know, those kind of three bubbles came together. And when you have a Venn diagram, of course, you have the, the three-way intersection. And for me, that was data science, but then you have effectively the off intersections. So when you think about combining something like, you know, substantive expertise with hacking skills, you know, that became, I think, one of the more popular areas because that's what I call the danger zone, right? That's where you, know, you may know a lot about a subject and you may know enough 
with the tools to produce some result, but you just don't know why the answer is there. And that was, you know, in some ways a big motivation for me in doing it because that was, that was something that sort of made me nervous at the time that you could see the idea of data science or the role of data science, data scientist really starting to take off, but not a lot of people who I saw really had much understanding of the underlying statistical properties of what they were using. And that, that felt to me pretty dangerous. And then on the other side, if you just have, you know, kind of statistical training or math training and subject matter expertise, to me, that was like all of my peers or colleagues who were graduate students learning their trade, but not necessarily interested in using computational tools to do it. That's more traditional research in my mind. That's you have you have a hypothesis that's driven by the subject that you understand. You know how to apply linear regression to that subject, and you go off and do that. But you're not you're not doing data science. Um, you know how to use so a p value you know, table on the on yeah, the last exactly. page of a like stats you, textbook. You, you, <laughs> you can look up your t-test and see how you, where you are on the grid, and, um, and and trust me, there's nothing wrong with that at all. It just wasn't data science, and so you know, kind of put these ideas down. And what's you know made me happy about it, although you know, I think now there's probably more pixels and in ink have been spilled about why the data science Venn diagram is wrong than why it's actually <laughs> been useful. Um, I, it does seem to, at least for many people who are new to data science, provide an initial clarity as to what we're trying to do. Cool. And yeah, it sounds like a badge of honor there as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, for sure, it's, you know, there'll be a data science Venn diagram right on the top of my tombstone, I'm sure. <laughs> so uh, just to summarize, the three circles that are going into this uh, Venn diagram are hacking, math, and a subject of expertise. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. All right. Jared, have you got another question for us? Ah, it's right there. He's so ready. You just have to press enter, I think. So... <laughs> Um, this question, Drew, is what are you learning and most excited about today? Well, that's a good question. Um, the truth is most of what I'm learning today, um, you know, apropos of our previous conversation is like, how do you create analyses and technologies that can effectively change behavior for businesses or, or business people that, m you know, may not may not be necessarily inclined to do that uh, or and certainly don't have experience with the tools. But that's, I think, not really where the questioner was, was thinking. <laughs> on, on the sort of technology and, and method side, you know, the two big areas that I focus on a lot today are, you know, more sophisticated ways of structuring time series. So, you know, whether that's, you know, using more, you know, contemporary deep learning tools, things like LSTMs to try to forecast future results and, and, and using and using those tools in such a way that that the results are interpretable to people like my colleagues who are investors who want to understand why things are working. So kind of unpacking some of that, you know, interpretability within these more complex models is something that I think about a lot. But also, you know, using time series data to do things that are perhaps not natural or, or what you might think about purely in a forecasting context. And so, you know, you can even give an example more recently in thinking about, um, you know, like dynamic time warp models where you can use that to actually classify different data generating processes. And why that becomes really useful for us is, you know, while the underlying investment strategy may be constant, how you can observe that in different markets or different asset classes through looking at a time series can be really informative and like using the differences 
that can get picked up by an algorithm like that are really, really interesting. Um, the other piece that I think a lot about um, and is a persistent problem in all data everywhere is essentially you know, named entity resolution. How to do this more effectively, how to think about this in a more efficient manner, how do we resolve all these different observations that may happen you know, across different units? So you can imagine, you know, for example, in my case, there may be lots and lots of different kinds of data that resolves to a particular property, right? Because it could be the owner of that building, it could be the tenants in that building, it could be the rent history of that building, it could also be you know, retail transactions that are happening in that building, it could be mobility data that's moving through that building. And all of those happen, you know, kind of on an X, Y plus data dimension. But then we also have to add time to it and understanding how to resolve observations that are logically true to a place, you know, through time, like a business may change its name, a owner will change over time, but it's the same building. And how do you have a consistent right. point in time analysis of that? Um, those are areas that we spend a lot of time thinking about um, and are, you know, complex, dirty you know, ETL type of problems and, and they have a and, and they have a machine learning data science component to them, but that's where the real work gets done. And so that that's what I get, you know, that's what I'm excited about for my team and, and some of the problems that we're working on. That problem that you just described about name entity recognition and being able to track ownership of properties and that kind of thing, it sounds very similar to the problems that Maureen Tessier was describing. Um, at Rionomy, a real estate data company where they use graph databases to track all those kinds of relationships between entities. And that's episode number 479, if listeners want to check out that and hear lots more about those kinds of approaches. I also wanted to, just before you got talking about named entity recognition, you were talking about time warping, mm-hmm. <laughs> which no wonder Two Sigma has been so successful I mean, that's just unfair if you can see into the future. <laughs> I, know, it has a very, I, I sort of love the the algorithm because of the name because it just has a very kind of Rocky Horror Picture Show vibe to it. So you feel like you can just like throw toilet paper at the laptop when it blows up in your face. <laughs> All right. Very good. All right, Jared, do we have uh, do we have any other questions there? Oh, we do. All right. So Max Kuhn, uh, who was a speaker at the conference. He talked about COVID ruining his data. Mm-hmm. Ah. And presumably not because they got infected, uh, but because things changed so much through the pandemic. So what impact, Drew, has COVID had on your models? Um, or does it's your long-term I mean, yeah. focus yeah, protect you from that a bit? I think, listen, it's had a huge impact. I mean, as I'm sure was the case for Max as well, uh, you know, Basically, any any holdout set that exists between you know 2020 and today is completely garbage because it's a it can totally different data generating process, and you know that is certainly true of every almost every observation that we would have in all of the work that we do. So, you know, as a simple example, if I'm training a forecasting model that's attempting to predict the you know value of some asset that I care about into the future. And I train that data on the last 10 years and then use 2019 to 2021 as my test set, my model is going to look terrible because those results will be be very, very bad. Um, And so, you know, we've had to think a lot about 
how do you you know how do you use whatever information may be contained in the observations of data that have happened over the last two years? But of course, how do you also build effective models that you think are going to be relevant as things eventually start to normalize? Um, and so, yes, it has absolutely um, had a had a tremendous impact on on obviously how we build and interpret our models, but also how we think about what data we can actually use and, and what the underlying biases may be in that. You know, on the second part of the question, does that, you know, does the long-term focus protect us from that? I think, you know, the answer to that is sort of yes and no, because if you look historically, you know, if you treat COVID as a sort of acute version of a recession in the, the economy, then you might think, yes, my long-term focus will protect me from that because ultimately things will normalize and we would expect right. kind of positive economic growth generally. But I don't really have any strong reason to believe that that's true because it's not that it's something completely different and it's not something that we've had much, you know, we certainly have any, any experience in the last hundred years and our data says don't go that far back. So we don't really have the ability to test right. on any previous <laughs> examples. <laughs> How were trucks over the Verrazano bridge affected by the Spanish flu? Right. I mean, the, they didn't back have the license plate readers <laughs> on the horse and buggy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man um yeah really great answer yeah and we do have time for one more jared is nice. asking if we can do that and here it is all right so it is given the current popularity of data science what do you surmise is the future of data science and the data science community good question um you know i i tend to think of you know, data science is following in a kind of similar pattern to a lot of technical disciplines that have evolved over the course of the last 20 years. Um, you know, my favorite example of this is like, you know, how many people do you meet today that have the title webmaster, like a single person who's responsible <laughs> for the, the, you know, the, the production and maintenance of a website, like that just doesn't exist anymore. We have a notion of a full stack engineer, but even that is a somewhat specialized role within an engineering team. So I think, you know, data science as a as a discipline, you know, roughly today splits between folks who are working either in, you know, full on or semi academic settings where they're actually doing more research and development, you know, people who are actually building algorithms that are going to improve our ability to classify or capture or forecast something. And then you mostly have a bunch of other data science. So I will mostly, I mean, truly more people doing this than than the former, who are thinking about how to apply those tools to a business or to a problem that they're working on. And I think within that set of folks, of you know, there there will continue to be a kind of splintering and and fanning out of specialization, you know, within the kinds of roles that ultimately are important for businesses to get right. And you know, a lot of people, I think, recently. Uh, talked about kind of data engineering or ML ops and, you know, all these different disciplines that I think you can kind of break out from data science more generally. And that makes a ton of sense to me because these systems are much more complicated. The volume of data is, is much, much higher. And the, the, the consequences of getting things, getting things wrong for a business are much, much higher. And so allowing people to focus on, you know, one or a smaller set of problems within that tool chain is ultimately, I think, a way for, you know, for the practice to become much, much more efficient. Um, but I do think, you know, 
the discipline itself, and you know, I'll go back to my Venn diagram, is still mostly made up of you know being able to ask the right questions, identify the right data, and apply the right method. And if you, you know, if you generally have a sense of of how to do that, and ultimately how to how to deploy that effectively within a business. And I think you're doing good data science and the roles and specializations, you know, will fall out of that based on the needs of the business. Makes perfect sense to me, Drew. Great answer to that question. We ended up having lots of really brilliant live questions. Thank you to the audience for having these for us. We didn't know whether there would be any. I had a bunch more prepared just in case, but you ended up having questions much better than mine. Really appreciate that we got to have Drew answer those live at the R conference for this first ever live episode of the Super Data Science Show. Um, I think we're pretty much ready to wrap up. Something, Drew, that we always do at the end of these episodes is ask for a book recommendation. And I'm mm. supposed to always, I usually tell the guests that before we start recording <laughs> so that you have time to think about an answer. But uh, just tossing it right on you here. Surprise. Uh, well, that's easy. My 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 favorite book recommendation for um, data scientists, or really anyone who thinks about kind of how to how to observe the world through math, is a classic Godel Escherbach. Most people will have probably read oh, it, yeah. um, but it's one of my favorite books. It's a book that you you know you certainly don't have to read it linearly. You can just sort of flip to a chapter and open it up. And I love that book. Um, for fiction, um, I'm a little bit late to the game, but I've really, really been enjoying the Three Body Problem series. Um, mm, it's such a wonderful yeah. sci-fi. People like big, complex sci-fi. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it. Nice. All right, that's a great recommendation. And then, Drew, you've had such wonderful insights for us today, and we managed to do this entire episode without any cuts or retakes. It's incredible. You're an <laughs> outstanding speaker. You have lots of great ideas. How can listeners track your work or follow your work? Um, what's the best way to follow you online? Sure. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on the social media, you know, just at Drew Conway on Twitter. I'm not quite as active as I used to be, but I occasionally get a couple punches in there. Um, <laughs> I post on LinkedIn occasionally as well. And, um, you know, anytime I get an opportunity to, to do something like this, I, I often post it on, on those formats. So that's probably the best way to, to, to see what I'm up to. Nice. All right. Thank you very much, Drew. And thank you, Jared and Nicole and everyone at the R conference for being open to trying this new experimental idea of recording a podcast live at a conference. Um, and we look forward to experimenting again in the future once these R conferences are live again. It'll be even more complex because we'll have the hybrid format. Um, I know everyone backstage is excited about that. Thank you so much, Drew. Thank you. I'm blown away that that live filmed episode managed to, to be executed without a hitch. I'm so grateful that Drew was open to the idea of doing this. His clear spoken eloquence seemed to make it a piece of cake for him. I'm also thankful to Jared Lander, who let us try this out for the first time at his New York R conference and who even meticulously screened audience questions for us in real time so that I could focus 100% on interviewing. 
In today's episode, Drew filled us in on how the massive open statistical programming community in New York grew up around his desire to accelerate his ability to teach himself R. The inspiration and topics covered in his fabulous hands-on R book, Machine Learning for Hackers, the one-to-one data scientist to investor buddy system Two Sigma leverages to create success, how data models in public markets are executed on short, often sub-second timeframes by machines, while models in private markets like real estate and private equity are executed over years and by humans. And he talked about how he looks to see how data scientists solve problems before considering hiring them. You can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the fun live video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Drew's LinkedIn and Twitter profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 511. That's superdatascience.com slash 511. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I always encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Super cool. We did it. With this experiment a success, look out for more live filmed episodes of Super Data Science in the future, including post-pandemic episodes filmed in person in front of a live studio audience for an extra dimension of energy and interactivity. Thanks to Ivana, Hyman, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing this special episode today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.